This is Joshua, chapters 9 to 12. A lot of bloodshed. Um, we don't like bloodshed, do we? Um, but we, it's good to be reminded that we are in Christ on a battlefield. Right? We're in him, but we're on a battlefield. Um, and so let's go ahead and pull out what God wants us to learn from these chapters here. And that I can stay um, focused with this. Um, there's deception. Because we live in Christ on a battlefield, there's deception. God is truth. Satan is lies. It's almost the opposite. Deception, deception, doubt, and depression. Those are his three Ds that he loved, the devil loves to get us with all the time. And so we have here um, deception with Joshua. They are um, kind of a little bit relaxed at this moment. The kings of in the Jor- beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, in the low land, if you look on your map in your Bible, the Many Bibles have the map in the back. They've crossed over the hill country. They got, you know, Jericho and Aon, the two major cities that were kind of at each end of the road, the road that got you over into the mountains, through the mountains. And now they're into the lowlands, the flatlands there, going off into the, the sea. And so God's reputation was getting around. And he had the reputation, the God of the Israel and the entire earth. And if you're not for God, then you're going to be against God. All right? So these people, these kings, these, all these ites were getting very scared and everything like that. And so they gathered all their together to fight against Joshua and Israel. So they're rallying all their troops. Meanwhile... This group of people, the Gibeonites, and if you look on your map, it's not that far away from where their little camp in Gilgal is. They um, are starting to have different thoughts about this, these uh, Israelites and stuff, and even joining with these other guys to go over. Three major battles are in in Joshua, Jericho, Ai, and this one that we're going to start See here, it's going to start with Gibeon, and then it flows over into the whole territory. And then after that, the land has been conquered, and the rest of Joshua talks about distributing the land. So this is the last bloody chapter that we really have. So if they're not going to join God, they're going to be against God. So these, all these other people are getting together to attack, but... The Gibeonites have different thoughts, which I find very unusual. But if we dig in a little bit deeper to what's going on here, it gives us an idea of the reputation that God had. The Gibeonites were afraid. They knew that they could not stand against the Israelite forces. And just peeking over at chapter 10, verse 2, it says that, you know, the king of... um, other kings greatly feared the Israelites because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So it gives us a picture of the Gibeonites was a great city, and all the men were warriors, and they were afraid of the Israelites. 
Not the Israelites, but the Israelites' God they were afraid of. So it's given us an idea of just the reputation that God was having here. Um, so the Gibeonites know they can't defeat God. And they're very cunning. They're very wily. It, they're, they are insidious. And they're putting together this plan. They, they're it, it, a plan to entrap the um, Israelites. They are being, being very deceived. Remember, there are people without God. They're a pagan culture. So they get together this plan because they can't go against the God of Israel. And they get worn out clothes and moldy food and you know, if you were really smart, you'd look at the horse's feet. I mean, there's things that you could be doing here, right? And they get together this little plot to move in. And we, the Jewish people, they were kind of, you know, humanitarians. They, they cared about people. And they, you know, were maybe got pulled into a, a sob story or whatever. Regardless, they make this plan and they move in and they come to Joshua and they demand a covenant with him, a covenant. So it's interesting that Joshua and the boys are there at their camp at Gilgal. They're a little bit more relaxed. They're on guard. They're not out on the battlefield. And the Gibeonites come in, and they're saying that they're from a far away country, a distant country. Where are you from? We're from a distant country. They say it twice. We're from a distant country. Now, if you ask me where I'm from, where do you live, Molly? I live between Abingdon and Meadowview. I have an Abingdon mailing address, and I have a Meadowview uh, phone number. Doesn't that give you a pretty good idea of where I live, right? I'm not going to say, oh, I live over there. This should have been a red flag to these people. Right? So Joshua, he's inquiring to them about it. You know, they say we're from a faraway place. We're coming to be your servants here. The only thing they were far away from was being, having a servant's attitude, really. Um, so they're coming in. Joshua is, you know, asking some questions, you know, inquiring about them. The fact that they can't give a specific geographic area should have been an alert. Not only that... When they're talking, when he's asking them questions about where they're from, he's even saying, they're coming together and say, well, we heard about what the God in verse 9, we were from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and to all the other kings. And so some of the elders and all the inhabitants of our country Again, there's no name. We are your servants. We've come to make a covenant with you. And so we got together all this stuff, and all the people, the inhabitants of our country, have sent us to you. If Joshua and the boys were inquiring of the God, the story would have taken a different route. But we know that God is sovereign, and God even uses our mistakes to his glory. So he makes a covenant with them. They check the food out. Things kind of make up. They got all the senses there, right? The five senses there. Everything, you know, smells right, tastes right, looks right, feels right. You know, it appears to be right. And many times we make decisions based on these things. We, God has given us the senses so we can use them and we can drop a lot of decisions from stuff like that, right? 
Unfortunately, we don't just live in a physical world. There's a spiritual realm that we also live in. And we can make an error assuming that reality is nothing more than the material world. Reality also consists of the spiritual realm, where there is a powerful, crafty enemy who lives and breathes in that, in that environment. Uh, and he is bent on our destruction. So there is... I need a bib. There is... Many people say that the um, faith is the sixth sense. Have you ever heard that before? Our faith is the sixth sense. In our memory verse that we had, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, I, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path, straight your paths. 7a says this. Be not wise in your own eyes. I wish they would have included that in it. Be not wise in your own eyes. All right? There's a quote I want to read to you by Alan Redpath. Quote, Never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything. When common sense says that a course is right... Lift your heart to God, for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a direction completely opposite to that which you call common sense. When voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribune of of heaven. Then, if you still are in doubt, dare to stand still. If you're called on to act and you have no time to pray... Don't act. If you are called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God. For none of them that wait on him shall ever be ashamed. That is the only way to outmatch the devil. There's always time. There's always time to take. There's always time to check in with God. So, they make this covenant, but God is sovereign, and it happened. And we also know that lies are always revealed. Truth always surfaces. In verse 16 and 17, we see that the covenant has been made, and the Gibeonites go back to Gibeon, which is about three days away. Because we see here, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. So here's the Israelites. They hear about, what do you mean they're over there? They just live there. Yeah. So then they take off, and they go to Gibeon. They have a mad, angry energy on them. We're going to burn. And, you know, and this is a lot of people. The people go. They reach out, they set out, and they reach the Gibeonites. But verse 18 tells us that the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. So Joshua and the boys have a little bit of a problem here. People are grumbling. 
They're not happy. They stopped them short of destroying the Gibeonites. And you know what? At this point, they could have, because they were supposed to destroy all the people, right? All the people in the land. That would have been a piece of cake. Just, you know, all right, go ahead. We'll just destroy you now. You lied to us, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. But two wrongs don't make a right. And Joshua is a man of his word. And so he's going to, they're going to stop the people from doing this. We made a vow. He said, we made a vow with them. In verse 19, we swore to the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. So what we're going to do, we're going to let them live. We're going to make them cutters of wood and drawers of water, so don't worry about that. So they got a plan out. And it's a good thing that Joshua kept the vow that he made before the Lord. Saul did not do that. In 2 Samuel 21, there's a story of Saul putting to death many Gibeonites. And because of that, there was three years famine in Israel because of Saul breaking that oath. So that's the plan. The people are okay. Quit murmuring. They all go back to camp. Gave them specific jobs. Now, this is the second time that Joshua has saved these people. The first time by making a vow with them and making peace. Okay, we won't destroy you. And the second time now by stopping the Israelites from destroying them. So these Gibeonites are seeing the kindness, the godliness of Joshua and the leaders and the commitment that Joshua has to his God, making an impact on these people, okay? Joshua starts to ask them, though, he confronts the Gibeonites, why did you guys do this? Why? Why do you lie? Why do you tell us that you, you know, you live far away? Verse, chapter, verse 24. Because it was told to your servants, referring to themselves now, for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before them. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are your servants. Do whatever seems good and right to you in your sight. Um, so they owned up, didn't they? They owned up. And the reason they did it was because they believed in the God of Israel. They believed the God of Israel could do this. Who else do we know about like that? Rahab, right? Rahab knew. These guys aren't all that bad. We all come to Christ as liars and deceivers. We all come that way, all right? We're all under judgment, And then God extended the grace to these people. And the Gibeonites, the town of Gibeon, became a very important town. So, reputation of God, of Israel, he fights for his people big time. So much so that these armies are petrified of him. Israel and their reputation continue on. And moving into chapter 10 we see that more kings down in the lower flatlands and everything where they are, they greatly feared what was going on. And they thought, you know what? We, we can't have the Gibeonites team up with the Israelites because that's going to be really, really bad. Really bad. So let's plot something now. Um, they saw already the destruction of Ai in Jericho, great fear, um, they could have surrendered, maybe, like the Gideonites did, but they weren't going to do that. Arrogant, prideful people, 
blind and deceived. Let's just rally all of our troops together. Five southern kings start to assemble everything that's going on. It's divided in half, the southern and the northern. So the area of the southern part of of the promised land is the focus right here. So they plan this attack when Israel's not there. They're going to attack Gibeon while the Israelites are hanging out at Camp Gilgal. Satan always tries to stop the advancement of the gospel, doesn't he? He's always plotting something like that. So these five kings were in an attempt to stop the Israelites from being any bigger than they they already were, any powerful. So here they come, they go up, they march around, and they encamp around Gibeon. They gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Notice the, the terms used now in directions. They went up. So Gibeon was on, a, on a, a rise and stuff, a pretty steep cliffs around, and they went up there and they encamped around Gibeon. In verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal. Hey, you know, camp. Remember the camp where the, the 12 rocks were, you know? That's where they were hanging out. They say to him, do not relax your hand from your servant. Come up, to, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Because the Amorites are all, they're all gathered around us and everything like that. Joshua um, has already saved them twice, made an oath to them. So they're coming to him. At this point, the Gibeonites could have also surrendered to these five kings and said, okay, well, yeah, okay, we really want to be with you guys. But they didn't. They're staying true now to the Israelites. You think God is pulling them into this flock here? Do you think it's like a Rahab thing? Um, Do not relax your hand against us. Do not change your mind about us. You've taken, you've saved us twice now. Don't stop. Save us, help us, a plead to the God of Israel to help them through Joshua. And Joshua, then they ask him to come up quickly, and he does. He's a man of his word, stepped out in faith, and he went. And God is a God of his word, and he tells Joshua in verse 8 of 10, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands, not a man of them, not a man of them shall stand before you. Past tense. Do not be afraid, for I have given them into your hands. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. What great assurance to, to Joshua. When I read that, it just brought me back to when we studied Romans moons ago. Romans 8, where it says in verse 28 to 30, and we know that for those who love, no, I want to start at 29. 28 is a good verse too, but 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, past tense, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are glorified. It is a done deal. It is past tense, okay? God is sovereign. He's outside of time. These promises are for us. We need to start living like this and quit living in anxiety and fear 
Ugh, so tired of anxiety. <laughs> Let me get impassioned about that, you know? I'm really tired of people getting medicated for anxiety, really, because it's not a medication thing. Anyways, I digress. So this is reassuring to Joshua, okay? So Joshua, in verse 9, and all the people of war and all the mighty men of valor march all night and arrive suddenly around Gibeon and surprise these people. Okay, this is a problem now because the five kings, they weren't supposed to do this, okay? That wasn't supposed to happen. Do you think that God fights fairly? Not really. He's got his own tactics there. He can do anything like that. Does he really fight? Here it is. I hear it all the time with grandkids. That's not fair. Well, they were outsmarted you. What do you mean it's not fair? Right? So because they weren't expecting that to happen, they're in a panic. God throws them into confusion, aimless, disorderly. When you have warriors, a mass amount of warriors, and there's aimlessness and disorder, they, it's worse than anything, because to be strategic is an essential part of effective conduct of war. Military, strategic, we know what we're going to do, and all of a sudden, boom, what are these Israelites doing here? Oh, no, and there's, God throws them into this confusion and everything, and, and so they start, whatever they start doing, somehow they, <laughs> they start running away from the, Gibeon, the Israelites and with the Gibeon, and they start battling these five kings, armies and they're running away and they're running back down remember they had to come up to get to Gibeon now they're running back down and as they're running back down to get away from um, the army of God God is like pelleting them with these little hailstorms bing 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 kind of knocking them off the cliff there knocking them off the cliff Job 38, 22. God says to Job, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Did you guys know that God has a warehouse of hailstorms? Isn't that not cool? So here he is, he's like throwing all this stuff down and they're all dying and it was just um, a wonderful thing probably that he went to, he fought for his people. God fought for his people. Um, And as he's doing this, something kind of, I mean that in itself is pretty bizarre if you ask me, but then something else even a little bit more bizarre happens in verse 12 of chapter 10. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasper, which is part of the Apocrypha? And the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day. So, that's kind of weird. It never happened before and everything. Um, and there's different thoughts of it. It's recorded in, you know, some history books of, you know, what happened. Apparently the Apocrypha, which is just um, 
not inspired writings, but writings around the same time, um, also acknowledged this day where the sun was longer. Did it stop? Did the earth stop? I don't know. You know, we're moving pretty fast, and for God to put the brakes on, we'd all be flying off, right? So we don't know what happened. We can speculate it wasn't an eclipse because the sun shone. We, you know, we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. Um, but here's the thing. We don't have to know how God did that because that's not the biggest thing. The biggest thing here is this. We're leading up to the biggest thing. These pagan countries worship the gods of the sun and the moon didn't they? They worship the sun, the gods of the sun and the moon. They sacrifice children to the sun and the moon. They sacrifice children to anything. The God of Israel, the one true God of heaven and earth, what does he do? He not just parts the sea and the water. He not just stops the Jordan River. He not just has the walls of Jericho fall down. But he can do the lights in the sky and have them stand still. He's in charge of that too. And it says there that Joshua said this in front of, in the sight of the Israelites. He's, he's letting the people know that he's talking to God and God is doing this. That's pretty cool. Now, God can speak things and things can happen. We got to stop trying to figure out it happened sun stopped it stopped it stopped but i don't want us to miss the really cool point here because there's a real cool point more cool than just the sun stopping and that's in verse 14 there has not there has been no day like it before or since when the lord heeded the voice of a man for the lord fought for israel Yes, the relationship that God has with his people. Don't miss that. That's that, what's going on. God fights for us. Um, it mat- we matter to him. He's our God. We're warriors in his army. That, the God of heaven and earth that can stop the sun, cares for us. That's the really big deal here, isn't it? And the bigger, bigger miracle there is, is our redemption. The fact that he would even die for us and get us out of hell. Try to explain that one, right? He fights for us. God's biggest miracle was redemption of his people. He fought Satan and he fought sin for us. In verse 15 of chapter 10, After this happens, Joshua returned to Camp Gilgal. Just another day on the battlefield. (laughs) They go back to camp, right? All right. These five kings are now pretty scared. Pretty, pretty scared. They abandon their troops, for one thing. That's really bad warfare. And they go and they hide out in this cave. Well, Joshua gets wind that they're hiding out in the cave, these guys run away, and Joshua um, knows that they're up there. And he says, well, just put a, you know, just cover it up. You know, don't worry about it. 
put a couple guards on it, and the rest of us, come on back here. We're just gonna, we, we've got more fighting to do. We've got God's work to do. At verse 21b, it's interesting. It says, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Boy, what an exciting time. We don't have that today against Christianity, do we? No. They want to snuff us out. But back then, they were, they were the cool people. We're not saying anything bad against any of those people, okay? Um, great respect. No one spoke ill of Israel. It was great respect. The next section here about these kings is kind of an odd section. We're going to take a stab at it here. They're done fighting. Joshua goes back to the cave, drags these kings out, gets them down in the dirt, puts their faces in the dirt, and has his um, mighty men, men of valor, whoever, not everybody, but these guys just come assemble by and just kind of, you know, put their, put their foot on their neck. It's a sign of triumph. It's on our Virginia state flag. Um, you know, it's a matter of, of victory and defeat for the enemy. And Joshua had his men do this because he wanted to empower them and have them share the victory and let them know that this is God's doing this. These people were corrupt, evil, perverted, disgusting, just the depravity of just godlessness. We can't think of it as, oh, it was my neighbor. They were standing on his neck. We've got to realize what was happening here with these people. So he allows his military leaders to assemble by, placing their foot on the enemy's neck. And Joshua was giving credit to God. In verse 25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you will fight. He was trying to get these guys ready so when we get into next week and the rest of Joshua, that they would go in and they would mop up what Joshua has, what all these um, battles have been. Because they didn't completely get rid of the people. They needed to be empowered to go in and say, finish the job. God will give them all over to you. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be convinced not to. God will fight for you. That's what I think was going on with that little standing on their necks there. Um, So we have the conquest of the southern Canaan, the southern part of the promised land in chapter 10. Um, 29 to the end of chapter 10 is is finishing up this conquest of the south. Okay. Six times... In the rest of the chapter 10, it says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him. Verse 29, verse 31. Then Joshua and all Israel with him. 34. Then Joshua and all Israel with him. 36. Joshua and all Israel with him. 38. Joshua and all Israel with him. 40. Joshua and all Israel with him. They went in and they killed people and there were none left, whatever. So they were cleaning up the land, right? They're just kind of going through. So this was battle after battle after battle after battle cleaning up in the southern kingdom, just cleaning it up. Canaanites' sin, remember, had reached its peak. This was judgment. This was judgment on these people. They were so perverse 
and we're filled with such hate and so whatever. We can't even imagine. What was judgment with Noah? The day of Noah? Remember what it said about Noah? I should have looked it up. About Noah, right before the flood, it says, not one thought of any person was good. That's kind of soft. Does that make sense? I'm not quoting that exactly right. Not one person had one good thought. That was what it was like in the day of Noah. So it'll be in the day of Noah, so it'll be in the day of the second coming. This is what it was like then too. People unrestrained without God get like this. And this is what these people were like. Archaeologists have now unearthed thousands of infant and fetal bones. Look at uh, Daisha's little baby. Look at that. Stand up and show that little baby. How on earth can people throw something like that in the fire? This is what these people were like. They have found thousands of infant and fetal bones all over the Canaanite country, okay? So we don't want to get this, oh, well, we, you know, you know what? It's not up to us. It's God's judgment. It's really God's judgment. So, southern, thing, southern uh, area is uh, conquested. Thank you, Daisha. He's so cute. <laughs> um, what? He what? You guys are talking anyways. Oh, another edit. I'm not going to edit that one. It's too far in. <laughs> Okay, so now we're down to the, the northern, we're up to the northern part now in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is pretty much cleaning up the northern part of what's going on. So we have these kings again, um, all rallying together to um, get an alliance going. But these guys have horses and chariots. This army is massive now in the north talks about them being a horde, which is a vast crowd of people, um, and they are going to just go after the Israelites now, okay? Chapter 11, verse 6, they were like more than sand, um, and, ch- and these the chariots, man, they were big, heavy, the horses that they had, I hate this part of the story, they do the horses, but they were big, heavy, muscular animals that pulled these things, and they could go swift into battle, and they could just drive over. I mean, it was just a warfare at its height with these chariots, and the Israelites hadn't encountered any of this yet. But chapter 11, verse 6 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I'm going to give them all over, slain to Israel. So go in hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And so Joshua did all that and whatever. And the Lord gave them all over to Israel. And he struck them down. He chased them away and he followed them. So it's just cutting the back of the hamstring of, a le- of the horse so they can't, it cripples the horse, they can't do it. So that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll move on. But um, God gave them the victory in all of that. King Jabin, who instigated this attack, he got the most severe punishment. Because it said that um, Joshua went back and he went into his country, Hazar, and burned that town um, down. King Jabin, who uh, instigated the attack, received a more severe punishment. Hell has different degrees of punishment. Did you guys know that? Luke 12 talks a little bit about it. 
Hebrews 10 talks about that, 10.26. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And it goes on. How much worse punishment? Different degrees of punishment. Um, he talks about the Pharisees, scribes and the Pharisees. Um, in Matthew, Matthew 23, 13, he says, they will receive a greater condemnation. Hell's still hell, but it can get a lot worse. Verse 15 of chapter 11 lets us know that there was a complete victory, um, total victory, complete obedience in it. Joshua, as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant, Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. We see a contrast between total obedience with God and uh, total rejection and hatred of God. Blessings, rejection. So, we see that Israel is at war for a very long time in verse 20. It was a long time mopping this up, doing all this stuff up. In verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should not, so that they should come against the Israelites in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction, should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as Moses had commanded, the Lord had commanded Moses. So, the hardening of the heart is, makes it sound like, well, oh, God made them bad. We're born bad. We're born bad. We're bad. It's God who makes us good. Romans 1, if you want to take a peek at Romans 1, what it says about evil people on the, this side of the cross, with, with grace, with Christ, there are people who will, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes and clearly everything is perceived. Um, so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks to him. They knew the God of Israel was doing this. And they chose not to bend the knee to him. So God gives them over to their depraved mind. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, their immorality. He just quit. Pulled back. And that's what happens to them. Still happens today with people. Okay? Um, so the land was given to the people. God fought for them, and it was given to them. In verse 23, we see that the land rests from war. Chapter 12 is a summary. It's just a summary of the, the list of defeated kings and their cities and the land that they ruled in. Uh, the first six verses are the kings that Moses defeated before they crossed over the Jordan. Remember, he had those tr couple of tribes stay there. But then they left their families and their flocks there, and they went over and they helped battle the rest of the tribe with the tribes. And then 7 to 24 is the list of the kings defeated by Joshua. Much, much bloodshed. Much bloodshed. But you know what? That land already had a lot of bloodshed by innocent children. 
And we got to open our. I'm wait. They notice, we got to open our eyes to see what's going on in our world today. With our children, Satan is always after our children. So this ends the conquest of the land. Um, and we go into now the re- remaining chapters tell about the settlement. And God's purpose has been accomplished because he's sovereign. I'm just going to end by reading you Genesis 12, 6 to 7. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Sovereign God fights for his people. God, thank you that you fight for us, that you have fought for us, for our salvation, and that you continue to fight for us. Give us the strength and the courage and the joy to stand resting in you to your glory. Amen.